Welcome to the Edge Talk Radio Network, your weekly source for information, empowerment, and connection. The Edge Magazine and its advertisers bring you inspired interviews and conversation on learning and healing, on our sacred journey, and on topics that expand beyond time and space. Now, welcome today's host. Good evening. I'm your host, Elise Markwom-Johns, and I'd like to welcome you to the Tuesday, September 1st, 2020 edition of Learning Well on Edge Talk Radio. Learning Well is sponsored by the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we'd like to take this opportunity to thank them so much for their continuing sponsorship. Our guest tonight is Dr. Wendy Wood, author of Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. I think most of us would be shocked to learn that we actually spend 43% of our day doing things without thinking about them. This means that almost half of our actions aren't conscious choices, but the result of our non-conscious minds nudging our bodies to carry out learned behaviors. How we respond to people around us, the way we conduct ourselves in meetings, what we buy, when and how we exercise, eat and drink, operate beyond our awareness. In her book, which we'll be discussing this evening, Dr. Wood draws on three decades of original research to explain how we form habits and offers the key to unlocking our habitual minds in order to reach our goals. So stay with us. Dr. Wood will be joining us very shortly. As many of you know, our Learning Well program would not be possible without the sponsorship of Normandale Community College's Integrative Health Education Center. And I'd like to take just a few minutes to acquaint you with some of the online learning opportunities that will be coming up this fall. A holistic nutrition certificate program will start on Monday, September 21st and run for eight weeks. Another eight-week certificate program in herbalism will start on Wednesday, September 23rd. And if you're interested in pursuing certification, in energy medicine, a seven-week session offered on Friday and Saturday will begin on Friday, October 9th. And on Thursday evening from October 1st through October 22nd, there will be an EFT Simplified Tapping Certificate program also. And dates will be coming soon for aromatherapy certification classes at both the fundamental and advanced levels. In addition, a whole array of Tai Chi classes will be streamed live, which you won't want to miss. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce this evening's guest, Dr. Wendy Wood. Dr. Wood is a social psychologist and is a provost professor of psychology and business at the University of Southern California, and also a distinguished visiting professor at INSEAD Business School in France. Prior to joining USC, Professor Wood was a James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience and Professor of Marketing at Duke University. She's a world-renowned expert on habit formation and habit change whose research addresses the ways that habits guide behavior and and why they're so difficult to break, as well as evolutionary accounts of gender differences in behavior. She's published over 100 articles in top-tier academic journals, teaches classes on behavior change at USC, and popular accounts of her work often appear in places like the New York Times, LA Times, and Washington Post. Dr. Wood is the prize-winning author of 
Good Habits, Bad Habits, which is in print in over 20 different languages. She often keynotes major conferences and events and consults for organizations like Procter & Gamble, as well as the World Bank. She's been associate editor of Psychology Review, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Personality and Social Psychology Review, and Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. She's a fellow of the American Psychological Association, the American Psychological Society, the Society for Experimental Social Psychology, and a founding member of the Society for Research Synthesis. She received her BS from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and her MS and PhD from the University of Massachusetts. Dr. Wood, welcome. We're so delighted to have you with us this evening. Thank you for that introduction, Elise. It's lovely to be here. Well, I'm just so curious. How long have you been researching habits? And more importantly, even, what first triggered your interest in this topic? Well, I started off my career by studying how people change, how people change their attitudes, beliefs. And we know an awful lot about that, psychologists, researchers do. But what was interesting to me is that we actually know a whole lot less about how to get people to change behavior and to get that to stick. So we even have sort of a um, uh, uh, a national um, holiday, New Year's resolution, that is devoted to um, making commitments to change that we guess we may not keep. Um, and that's one of the things that got me interested in studying habit is what is it about behavior that is so hard to get changed and make it stick. Um, and, and that's the question that led me to study habit. And what made you decide to write a book? Well, habits are something that most of us are interested in. We want to know more about our own habits and um, how to control them. So there's a lot of information out there in the public um, much of it's not really well researched and it's not well validated. So I wanted to bring the science behind habit formation and change to people so that they would have more control over their behavior and be able to meet their goals more effectively. So the book is based on research. Some of it's my research, some of it's other psychologists, behavior change experts in the field. But it's written in a way so that people should find it accessible in their own lives and be able to use the ideas to apply them to their own behavior and to understand other people's behavior. I think that's what I most appreciated about your book, um, in addition to obviously all the incredible research expertise that you have and the amount of time that you've been spending working on this whole topic, but also just finding a way to make it practical for the rest of us. Um, So thank you for that. (laughs) I'm glad it worked. I I do (laughs) think that that bringing science and making it accessible to people is um, something that 
is important, but not something that the scientists themselves always feel like they can do. Um, so it took me a while, <laughs> to be honest, in writing this book. I've been researching the topic of habits for about 30 years, and the book took me about oh, three years total to write. So it took me a while to figure out how to make it accessible, but I think it is. I think it was successful. Yeah, so I'm glad to hear that you found it that way. <laughs> so I was so fascinated when you got into the whole concept of how habits reflect how our brain is organized. Could you talk a little bit about that? I think I think our listeners will find that fascinating. Yeah, so we think of our brain as a single unitary thing that all works together, but it's not. It developed, it evolved over human history and sort of fits and starts. So parts of our brain were formed, they may have been lost, they were built on further. And what we have in the end is a very complex set of interconnected networks that do different things. And so part of our neural networks are set up to capture repetition to capture repeated behavior so that when you have to do something again in the future, you don't have to think so hard about it. Instead, you can just retrieve pretty directly what you did before that worked. So the habit neural system is really capturing regularities in our experience and making it available for us. Memories develop very slowly over time time. So you have to do something over and over and over again for it finally to develop up, develop sufficiently habits. And once you form those habit memories, they're just as slow to change. In fact, some researchers think that once you form a habit, that that memory never goes away. That it's always there waiting to be reactivated again when you're in the right context, when you perceive the same cues as triggered habits in the past. Now, the, so, the habit sorry. memory... Oh, go, please, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, okay, talking, the, the habit what, what, memory wait. part of our brain is something that we don't really have access to. We see it working, right? So I have a habit. I get up in the morning. I make coffee pretty much the same way every single day. But I don't necessarily have access to how I'm doing it. I mean, I can see what I'm doing, but the memory is not accessible in the same way as you can remember, say, what you um, ate for dinner last night or... Um, some other specific episode, some incident that happened to you, those memories we can recall and talk about, whereas habit memories are more procedural. They're about how to do things, and they're what our brain has stored that is not accessible to our awareness. It's not something that we can actually observe directly. 
So am I right in assuming that the longer you have a habit, the harder it would be to break? Or or do we know that? Um, certainly, the more you have practiced a behavior in the same way over and over, the harder it is to break, yes. Because we'll strengthen the habit memory and make it so that it's more resistant to change. So I remember reading, oh goodness, I don't know how many years ago, that pretty much you can form a new behavior or habit uh, if you repeat it for 28 days. Is that is that accurate? No, there's all kinds of um, <laughs> ideas out there about how long it takes to form a habit. But if you think of habit memory as a way of learning, as a kind of a learning system, then it makes sense that things that are more complex to learn, they're just going to take longer to form into a habit. Things that are easy to do, you're going to learn that habit faster. Hmm. Willpower is such a fascinating topic. And I would assume then that strong willpower probably isn't enough to actually change some habits, or or am I off base on that? No, you're absolutely right. And and that's part of the, the challenge with understanding our habits is we actually we, we have access to certain parts of our brain. So we can make decisions. We can exert willpower. We can um, exert self-control. Takes effort, takes thought, takes some focus. We know how to do those things. But habits are sort of in the background. They're part of the infrastructure that keeps our behavior organized. So we don't have access to them, and we tend to focus on the things that we do understand, like willpower. And we assume that's how we change our behavior, right? You make a decision, you exert willpower, and you make it happen. That's how most of us think behavior change occurs. But it doesn't really work that way when it comes to habits. Because as you said, habits are so resilient they tend to persist. That habit memory will persist long after you've worn out your willpower and whatever self-denial you're putting yourself through is not much fun anymore. Well, I love the opening of your book because you talk about a cousin who's trying to lose weight and put some posts on Facebook about her intention. Could you share a little bit of that story with us and what eventually happened? Yeah, I'm afraid that most of us know what (laughs) (laughs) Not a good outcome. um, No, I'm afraid that um, for most of us, and indeed my cousin is is one of these people, um, we make decisions to do things like lose weight, our um, decision to do that, we... um, exert effort, we set ourselves up, we hope for success 
In her case, she shared it on Facebook, as you said, with a bunch of her friends, trying to bolster her confidence. But that works for a relatively short amount of time. And part of the reason has to do with the nature of self-denial. So we know from um, psychological research that was conducted about 20 years ago that when you deny yourself something, what you're doing is you're forcing yourself to think about it usually because that's Mm -hmm. how we exert self-control. We say, I'm not going to eat this. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do something different. But simply by doing that, what we end up with is we end up reminding ourselves what we're denying. (laughs) And there's good research that this was done. This was done with um, trying not to think of something that none of us think about anyway, which is a white bear. And in this research project, people told not to think about a white bear were actually more likely to think about it later after the study was over. So it's as if trying not to think about it gave it some energy to reappear in their consciousness later repeatedly. And that's what happens with denial. It has these ironic effects, makes us want them more, (laughs) which is why self-control doesn't work so well. It keeps us thinking about the thing that we're trying not to do. And ultimately, most of us just end up giving up, as my cousin did, with her attempts at losing weight. And we end up feeling like a failure because of it. We feel like maybe we didn't want it enough. We didn't do it in the right way. We um, aren't really very strong people. But that's not true. (laughs) Once you understand how habits work, you realize that you're not going to be able to be successful changing them by exerting self-control. So I, I can just hear wheels turning in some of our listeners' minds about, okay, let's follow up with that question. <laughs> Since weight loss is something that so many of us would like to accomplish, what oh, does your research tell us about how we might be more successful in accomplishing weight loss goals, for instance? Well, what you have to realize is that your behavior responds to somewhat different things than your decision-making self does. In the book, I actually talk about us as having, each of us as having two selves. One is a sort of a habit self that works automatically outside of conscious awareness. And the other is our more conscious decision-making self that um, propels us forward, that um, makes our conscious decisions for us. And what controls the habit memory part of our brain is, as I said before, repetition. 
And what kinds of behavior we repeat depends upon what we find rewarding. So people are much more likely to repeat actions that they find rewarding than ones that are not rewarding. And they're much more likely to form them into habits. And this was illustrated in a lovely study, again, one that I didn't do, um, but it was done with New Year's resolutions. Three months after people had made the resolution, the question that the researchers asked was, so which ones did they keep, right? They had three months. Um, it's a good time to go and, and find out from people. They asked these participants what resolutions they had made, and then they had them rate each resolution. First, life-changing it would be. Because that's where we make resolutions, right? We want to change our lives. And second was how much fun it would be. Three months after they made the resolution, the ones that stuck were the ones that were fun, not the ones that were life-changing, which is really surprising because the whole New Year's resolution thing is about changing our lives, losing weight, becoming fit, saving money, doing all of those good things in our lives. And it just doesn't work the way we think it does. It's really much simpler. It's based on what you find rewarding. And there's another piece to it as well. So rewards are are a big piece of it. But another piece is How easy is it to do the behavior? So it's a very simple idea. People tend to repeat behaviors that are easier than ones that are more difficult. Sounds obvious, but it's not the way most of us function, right? So if I ask you, are you going to go to the gym tomorrow, work out? get fit, probably think to yourself, well, it depends on whether I make a decision to do that, right? Whether I intend to. But there's really good data that how easy it is for us to get to the gym is a major determinant of whether we'll work out. Hmm. This was done with cell phones. It was done by a data analytics. This research was done by a data analytics company with cell phones tracking how far people went to a paid fitness center. I mean, what they're doing is they're tracking how far cell phones went, but people are holding those cell phones. And what they found is that if people were traveling about three and a half miles to get to a gym, they went five times a month. If they were traveling over five miles to get to the gym, they only went once a month. So by making it easier on yourself to get to the gym, going to a closer gym, tying it in with other chores, maybe at the end of a work day, the beginning of a work day, somehow making it easy for you to work out that's a very important determinant of whether you actually will. 
And that's what I mean by ease. And I'm so, so curious. So are there any major programs out there, for instance, in the weight loss world that actually take any of this into account <laughs> and build it into their programs? Or is that research pretty much ignored in terms of how how those companies approach it? Well, unfortunately, <laughs> there aren't many, many programs that actually build on the research on how people stay fit and lose weight. Um, but you can do it yourself if you understand the principles. So make it easy to do the thing that is healthy and harder to do the thing that is more difficult. Again, I'll, I'll go back to a study that um, someone did with food, showing that if you have two bowls of food in front of you, one is a bowl of apple slices, and the other is a bowl of buttered popcorn. Slices are within easy reach. You'll eat about 50 calories, mostly apple. If the popcorn is within easy reach and the apple is pushed further away, then you'll eat three times that much. Hmm. And it's not that you're hungrier. It's just that that's what's available. That's what's easy for you to get. So building off of that, what you need to do is you need to make it easy for yourself to eat the right kinds of food and more difficult to eat the things that are not so healthy for you. When I go to the store, I buy cut-up fruit and vegetables. It's a little bit more expensive, and you have to use them faster because they go bad more quickly. But I know that I'm much more likely to eat them than if I buy whole fruit and whole vegetables and I have to cook them and prepare them. I've just found this watching my own behavior. And it works for me. The tricks that work for you will be a little different. Could be you're willing to cut up fruit, but you're not willing to cook vegetables or many different, many different options there. But just making it as easy as possible for you to access the healthy food and not snack on the things that aren't as healthy. That's going to go far in helping you control your eating. Now, this all sounds a little too simple. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a major insight that's different from what most of us already know, but it's not how most of us go about changing our behavior right now. This isn't the approach that most of us are using. And that's why it can be it can be powerful in your life if you understand the principles of reward and making things easy that are things you want to do. So there is something to be said to the whole concept of when you're thinking about dieting, clean out the foods that are not the best for you to eat and shop and only have available the things that are healthier to eat or better for you. Um, so it does sound like there's something to be said for that approach. 
Yes, there is. And that's what the habit research shows us is that um, if, if it's not easily available, you probably won't eat it. <laughs> yeah. So um, you can make that work to your benefit. You know, marketers use these techniques all the time on us as consumers. They are so effective in selling things. So when you go into a store, in a grocery store, there's a saying that retailers have, which is eye level is buy level, Mm. meaning the things you can see easily are the things you are much more likely to buy. That's why they put some of the cheap stuff down at your feet because (laughs) they know you're not going to bend over looking for it most of the time. Instead, they can influence what you buy simply by making it more accessible. Online as well. It's part of the challenge that we all have right now that marketers have made it so easy for us to spend money. You don't even have to enter your credit card on Amazon anymore right? It's all stored in there. It's just one click and you've bought something. That one click shopping was Amazon's innovation and they had a patent on it for a while so that other companies didn't have access to it. Hmm. And that's part of what made them so successful was understanding that one click, you've sold something. Two clicks, And you've lost a customer. Hmm. We're very susceptible to this, the effects of ease on our behavior. And that influences what behaviors we repeat and what habits we form. So I'm assuming that if you layer in the positives, like how easy something is, and then if it's a reward, it's going to be even more useful, more beneficial. More attractive, yes. So um, I was a runner for a long time, and I absolutely adored running. But, you know, as you get older, things don't work quite as well. Um, So I had to find another exercise. and I kept trying different things out in the gym, I'm not very good at getting to classes because my schedule shifts around a lot. So I needed something I could do on my own. And I found that working out on an elliptical was very similar to running, just less stress on joints. But it's dreadfully boring. And I had a really hard time making myself form a a, a habit to do it the same way as I did running, which I absolutely love. What I ended up doing is is I watch things on TV when I work out on the elliptical, but I don't let myself watch other times. And that's very rewarding. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, I now look forward to working out in ways that I didn't think I could with this hardly boring machine. Um, But I even bought one myself. So it's in my house. It's rewarding. And I do it on a regular basis because it's easy 
and I find it fun. What I'm your ca- listeners okay. can work out for themselves is probably a bit different than that, but everyone can figure out something to make exercise fun. Jeez, if I can figure out how to make an elliptical fun. <laughs> People can figure out all kinds of things. I'm just curious. Are there are there some people that are just more prone or more easily good habits? Does personality play any kind of role here or how easily people are able to delay gratification, that kind of thing? Well, you know, habit is a very basic learning mechanism. Um, It's something we share with all mammals. So your dog has habits. Whales have habits. It's not something that requires a whole lot of work, effort, and self-discipline. Forming the right habits, mind. But everybody has habits. We and, and that's something I learned early on in my research. I started off thinking, well, there are probably some people who are really organized and have this highly structured life, and other people who are sort of more laid back and kind of go with the flow. And we didn't find that in any of our studies. Instead, what we found is that some people have habits came really well for them, and so they look like they're so that they're well organized and they have high self control and other people have habits that don't work so well. Their habits are sleeping late, um, not getting things done on time, procrastinating they're just not working well, but they have habits, and that's the trick is it's not that. Some people have habits and others don't. It's that some people have healthier habits, more productive habits mm-hmm. than others. Okay. So it's and a matter it, of figuring out how. Yeah. Well, one thing that really surprised me, um, I must say, is that you indicated that inconsistent rewards build habits the fastest. Um, why is this the case, and, and how can you sh- can you share some examples with us of of how this works? Yeah, this again, this is something that marketers and retailers know well, as do technology companies. So, if you're like me, well, most people I could say um, are like me in checking their phone multiple times a day. In fact. I think the research evidence is that we check our phones on average over 80 times a day. Most of the time, you get nothing that's of interest, right? You you get spam emails. You um, see things in social um, uh, social messaging sites that are just not interesting. It's only every once in a while that you get a piece of information that's really rewarding. And that's intermittent reinforcement. That's occasional rewards for repeated checking. Hmm. It's the same principle that works with, um, with slot machines 
and gambling is most of the time you get nothing. Every once in a while you hit a jackpot. And that keeps people putting money into the machines because it's fun. It's a game. It's something that engages our brain. And the explanation for this is that it's the occasional rewards that really generate um, release of dopamine in our brains. Dopamine is that neurotransmitter that's sometimes called like the feel-good chemical. It has many functions in our brain, but one of them is it does respond to rewards, particularly rewards that are unexpected or intermittent. They're not every single time. That's where our brains really respond, and that's when we really learn new habits. Excuse me. In part two of your book, you cover the three bases, the three bases of habit formation. Could you could you share all three of those with us? Yes, I I already have one of them, which is that um, habits form from rewards. So you can think of habits as sort of a mental shortcut, right? They're mental shortcuts that we learn what to do in this context to get the reward that you got in the past. And they're really functional way. They're dependent on rewards, getting that reward, They depend on context, so the situation or the surroundings that you're in when you perform the behavior, and then they also depend on repetition. So those are the three components of forming a habit so that you get this mental shortcut that allows you to repeat a behavior automatically without even thinking about it. I think one of my my favorite examples of this kind of um, of, of the way we store habit is most of us type on a computer keyboard every day, even if it's only to send emails to friends. Most of us type every day, and we use the keyboard automatically. If I asked you to list off all of the keys on the second row of the keyboard, you probably couldn't. And that's what I mean when I say habits are not accessible because we're not aware of what those keys are, but we can use them, and we do on a regular basis. There was a really interesting public health initiative uh, a number of years back called Five-A-Day, which was an attempt to encourage Americans to eat five fruits and vegetables a day, but it definitely did not be a success. Can you talk a little bit about why it didn't work and how it could have been more successful? Yeah. So this is, again, going back to how we think behavior change happens. It was a great initiative. It was supported by the, the National Cancer Institute and fruit and vegetable growers in the U.S. 
the idea was to teach people that they should eat more fruits and vegetables as a way of getting them to do so. And I don't know if you remember the um, the program. It was around in the 90s. Yep. And it was very successful in one way. It changed people's understanding of what they should be doing. At the beginning of the program, only about 8% of the U.S. population knew that they should be eating five servings of fruit and vegetables a day. And five years after the program had started, that percentage was up to about a third. So that's tremendous impact. But the problem was, was it changed people's understanding, but it didn't change their behavior. In fact, since that program was initiated, fruit and vegetable consumption has gone down in the U.S. Even though more of us know we should be doing it, few of us are actually doing it. And the the point is that what we think and what we understand, what we know, is not always translated into what we do. Our behavior is very much determined by the context that we're in, what we find rewarding, and what we've repeated in the past. Particularly eating is something that's very habitual. Most of us eat on a set pattern, And once we get into that pattern, it's very hard to change. We also tend to shop in a very consistent pattern. So you probably go down a couple of aisles in the grocery store and ignore most of the others. Most people in a grocery store only cover about 25% of maybe as much of a as a third of the store on a regular basis because we're just buying the same things over and over. And mm-hmm. we do so quickly without really looking at what we're buying. We're um, responding to past habits. We're not making decisions. So in order to get people to change their behavior, you have to make it easier for them to actually purchase fruits and vegetables and bring them home, set it up so people know how to prepare these things easily, and get people used to eating them so that they find them more rewarding or learn ways to prepare them so they're more rewarding. There's a great study in which people were just given fruits and vegetables to eat on a regular basis. And just after being exposed to them, most people reported liking them more and also eating more of them outside of the study. So even when they didn't have to, they were eating more of them. Now, it's not true for everyone. There's probably about 15% of people who just hate fruits and vegetables and will never change their mind. But (laughs) for most of us, just being exposed to them and getting used to them makes us like them more. So... There are many things you can do to encourage people to change their behavior 
And it doesn't, it's not by convincing them that it's the right thing to do. That works with one-off decisions like, oh, signing up for a retirement plan at work or getting our kids into the right school. Those are important one-off decisions that we make. But the repeated things, the things we do over and over again, for those kinds of behaviors, we really have to understand what controls the behavior itself. It's not enough to change our thoughts and change our willpower and desires. So the other, in opposition to that lack of success with the five-a-day program, Cigarette smoking has decreased dramatically in this country. What initiatives were most successful in helping people kick the smoking habit and then lower the number of people who actually smoke cigarettes? How, how has that worked differently? What's, what's really worked with that program? Yeah, that's a great example. That was a health campaign that really focused on behavior. So back in the last century, when we were learning about the dangers of cigarette smoke, there was a very influential article published in Reader's Digest, which everyone read back then. Um, It was called Cancer by the Carton, and it outlined all of the problems, the risks, the health risks associated with smoking. Soon after that, the Surgeon General published his report outlining the health risks of smoking. The problem was people learned that it was bad for them, but it was really hard for them to change their behavior. Nicotine is quite addictive, and smoking becomes a a habitual pattern that you do on a regular basis. Um, People were smoking everywhere smoking in restaurants. It's hard to believe, but people were even smoking in airplanes. Hmm. I don't know if you remember the smoking section in airplanes, but... Oh, um, yes. Nowadays, that would never happen. Back at the end of the last century, that was okay. But all of this changed when the government started taxing cigarettes They took them off store shelves so that we couldn't just buy them. Instead, we have to go up to somebody behind the counter, show them our ID that we're old enough, and then ask them for a certain kind of cigarette that we want to purchase. All of this makes it slightly more difficult. It adds what we call friction to the behavior. It's not as easy. And then... They started banning smoking in public places. So you could no longer smoke in the office. You could no longer smoke in restaurants and bars in most communities. It's not true for all communities in the U.S., but in most. And that put so much friction on smoking. It made smoking so difficult that now only 15% of American smoke. At one point, it was closer to a half. So that's That's a tremendous success story. And it happened because pressure on the behavior itself 
not so much on educating people, although we all know smoking's bad for us. It wasn't easy to, to actually get control of it until the government started to help us through taxes, um, through removing cigarettes and advertising from stores, and then also through banning smoking in public places. Which really is fascinating to think about because we all know the kinds of foods that are that are not the best for us to eat. Um, and yet mm-hmm. I can't imagine that the government's going to pressure the f- food. I mean, how they... How the, the government did that with the how strong the tobacco industry was is sort of <laughs> fascinating to think about, and how they could possibly help us with the food industry being as powerful as it is is also interesting to think about. It is um, with smoking. It was mostly the um, the, the pressure came when we realized that secondhand smoke affected people other than the smoker. And then all of a sudden it became broader health risk. It isn't just if you want to smoke, go ahead, ruin your house. It's you're also ruining my house. And that was part of the impetus for all of this, um, the the government regulations on smoking. Uh, What's going to happen with... um, food, I don't know, because you're right, we have the same problem. There's a very strong food industry that has actually trained us up to like certain types of food, and and we really do. <laughs> we mm-hmm. like the kinds of food that, that we eat on, on a daily basis. And so the change will, become, will, will be slow, and it will be a challenge, but I think it will involve some sort of um, national intervention, much like with um, the taxes that some communities have levied on sugared sodas. Mm -hmm. That may become more general. As we recognize what effects that has on children's health, children aren't in really a position to be making these decisions themselves. And when soda is so generally available, um, it's hard for kids to do the right thing. But if they were taxed or less generally available, I think we'd see a change in um, the obesity rates in the U.S. Wouldn't that be interesting to see bakery items behind a counter that you have to ask for? <laughs> yeah. <items. laughs> well, well, you know, one of the one of the things that has had some effect is labeling. Um, so some restaurants are now required to put calorie labels on their items, and although those don't seem to affect people's behavior, the consumer's behavior that much. They have had, in some some instances, effects on what is being offered. So, for example, Starbucks doesn't like to have those 600-calorie muffins just sitting there in the store window with that number on them. Um, and there was, there is some evidence that 
the size of the baked goods reduced slightly after Starbucks had to start putting labels, calorie labels mm-hmm. on them. So interesting. transparency can also help. It won't necessarily change your behavior or mine, but it might change the kinds of options we have available to us. I'm curious, with the years of research that you've done, Dr. Wood, is there any research that absolutely surprised you the most that was totally unexpected? Um, Well, let me tell you about my favorite. I, I go through different studies being favorite studies, but this is my favorite study right now. And it was done with um, an elevator in an office building. This is an old study. It was done in the 1980s. What the researchers did is they wanted people to start taking the stairs and quit taking the elevator as often. So first thing they did is they put big signs. Take the stairs. It's good for your health. Get some exercise. No effect. So, so they, they, they put other signs. Um, take the stairs. Save energy. Don't use the elevator. No effect again. So what the researchers did is they thought, well, they're going to need to actually do something that affects behavior directly. So they slowed the closing of the elevator door. <laughs> they slowed it by 16 seconds. And that had such an effect that a third fewer people used the elevator. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that was adding friction, making it yeah. more difficult. And several weeks later, when the researchers sped up the elevator again, people had, to, to its normal pace, people in the office building had formed habits to take mm. the stairs. And they didn't even try using this slow, <laughs> um, unreliable elevator. They just stuck with the stairs. So it turned <laughs> out to great. be a relatively permanent change for people in this building. And that just takes understanding what it is that controls our behavior. Exhortations to get us to exercise, to save energy. We'd all like to believe we'd do those things, but instead our behavior is very responsive to friction in the environment, to what's easy and what's difficult. That's a great story to end on. Our time has gone so quickly. I appreciate your spending the, this time with us tonight. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Wood. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> well, I highly recommend Dr. Wood's book. You will find it absolutely fascinating. I, before we close tonight, I would like to take just a moment to let you know about some of our guests on future editions of Learning Well. We have some nationally prominent guests who will be joining us in the coming months, including Isaac Lidsky, who will be our guest next month on October 6th. He's a corporate speaker, author, entrepreneur. He published his New York Times bestselling book, Eyes Wide Open, Overcoming Obstacles and Recognizing Opportunities in a World that Can't See Clearly. Lidsky draws on his experience of achieving a immense success, joy, and fulfillment while losing his sight 
to show us that it isn't external circumstances, but how we perceive and respond to them that governs our reality. And then in November, on November 3rd, energy medicine expert Cindy Dale will be joining us. She's an internationally renowned author, speaker, healer, and business consultant. She's a resident, uh, president excuse me, of Life System Services, through which she's conducted over 65,000 client sessions and presented training classes throughout Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Cindy is the author of more than a dozen books, including The Spiritual Power of Empathy and Awaken Clairvoyant Energy. And our December 1st guest will be Vijal Trivedi. She's an award-winning freelance journalist specializing in long-form narrative features about biology, medicine, and health. And she's just completed her first book, Breath from Salt, A Deadly Genetic Disease, A New Era in Science, and the Patients and Families Who Changed Medicine Forever. So we hope you'll join us for those future programs. And if you've missed one of our Living Well programs, you can always listen to any of our programs at your convenience by accessing our archived programs. So if you wish to explore past conversations with such leaders in the field of health and wellness as Dr. Michael Roizen, Dr. Michael Greger, Mary Hayes Greco, or Dr. Henry Evans, please feel free to browse the archived Learning Well programs, which can be found by simply Googling Edge Talk Radio Learning Well Archives. In closing, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Wendy Wood, the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College for sponsoring our show, and also thank you for joining us this evening. We hope you'll tune in next month on Tuesday, October 6th for our conversation with Isaac Linsky. And we also hope that if you enjoy our Living Well program, you'll also let at least one other person know about our monthly conversations on Learning Well. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, and we hope you can be with us next month on Tuesday, October 6th, when Isaac Lidsky Lidsky will be our guest. Until then, good evening and stay well. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.